Good morning. It is great to be together to worship God this morning. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It always is encouraging to be with other people that love God and, and want to be a part of adoration and praise toward Him. It's good as a guest to be a part of the congregation. We appreciate your warm hospitality. Uh, it's already been delightful to be here, and we look forward to the rest of the day. I mentioned a little more depth. I'll just mention it in passing right now uh, that we'll have what we call our mobile information center, MIC. We'll be parked right outside your exit in, to the right as you go out and leave today. And there'll be Coca-Colas and Moon Pies and bacon on a stick uh, for anybody that wants it. And uh, we would love for you to pass by. Also, the, the little trailer itself will be set up as a photo booth. So if any of you want to go through and, and uh, take home a little postcard photo uh, size picture, uh, you would be welcome to do that. And yes, that is for all ages. We find out that really it's some of the older ones that enjoy it as much as uh, some of the younger ones. It is wonderful to have several here uh, from Fried Hardeman that are part of our admissions or our advancement department, as well as our uh, Chancellor Milton Sewell and his wife Laurel are here, and uh, he served as president for a couple of decades and really led Fred Hardeman in a tremendous way. We're all here because we want to visit with you, and we want to get to know you. If you have any questions, concerns, uh, we just want to connect with you. I know there's a lot from the Fred Hardeman family here, and uh, it's, it's good to see you. Appreciate Spencer and Michael and the work that they're doing here. Appreciate their families, and look forward to this, this afternoon. For any of you, especially if you have middle school or high school age uh, student, children in your home, uh, we have a college planning seminar uh, that we do a lot of places that we go, and it's at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And it's not just if you're planning to attend Fried Hardeman. It's anywhere you go. It'll talk about the FAFSA. It'll talk about uh, how to make visits and find what you need to find to see if it's a connection for you, etc. And so uh, our feedback from those are, are very good. So if that would be helpful to you, uh, please be a part of that at 4 o'clock. And then also, uh, I believe it's at 5 o'clock this afternoon, is the Back to School Bash. And we really, really look forward uh, to being around a lot of young people. You know, that's the best part of, of working in a Christian university is the opportunity to be around so many faithful Christians. Uh, you know, in, at, at Fried Hardeman, we could talk about every class being taught. Uh, by a faithful member of the Lord's Church. We could talk about the academics of 83% of them have their doctorate degree and 90% of our undergraduate classes are taught by full-time faculty. We could talk about the acceptance rates into professional schools, almost 100%, and, and the schools that nobody has 100% in, we have really way above national averages, like in the med school, our, our acceptance rate is 91%, veterinarian school is 91%, national average is about 70% on those. All that stuff is wonderful, but really what makes Fried Hardeman over the top, uh, is the young men and women that live on that campus that love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It creates an environment that is just so encouraging to us adults. Uh, it it's creates such a wonderful experience for other students that live among them that aren't Christians or they are stagnant in their faith. Uh, our goal is not for a young person to come to us and, and survive in their faith. Uh, our goal is for young people to come, and by the time they leave at 22 or 23 years of age, our goal is for them to be thriving in their faith. Uh, we would count it a failure if a young person came, and by the time they left, uh, they didn't love God and love His church more than when they came. 
And so uh, I want to encourage you to be praying for, for our young people. Uh, they are in a tough journey of life in that there are a lot of things that they experience and a lot of things that's just literally at, 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 at their disposal, at their fingertips, that makes that stage of life very, very challenging. And I know this time of year, you will have many that will go off to college. And uh, some will go into the military. Uh, some will go straight into the workforce. Uh, I hope that you would be praying for them every day and would be keeping up with them. Uh, I hope that, that you'll be praying for us uh, as, as universities. Pray uh, for Freed Hardeman. We would greatly, greatly appreciate that. Uh, we want to stay on mission, and we want to be that place of academic excellence, but we also want to be that place uh, that stays rooted in faith. I'd like to share with you a story that is kind of sobering. Uh, it's true story. While I was at Freed Hardeman as a student, uh, I went to another region of the country to do an internship. And I lived in some people's home that were members of the Lord's church. And every morning, the, the mother in the home would, would get up and, and she would just begin preparing breakfast. And as, as different family members would pass through and sit down and eat, whoever was there at that time, she would just start putting breakfast out based on what they wanted. So that morning was taking place just as it always did. Two of her sons that were still at home, one was 13, one was 17. Both of them were already, even at 13, was large, tall, strapping young men, uh, well over six feet tall. Both of them went on to excel in college football, and one went on to play in the NFL. And, and they're, you know, just woofing down breakfast, and the phone rings, and I'm over in the refrigerator at the time this is taking place, and you hear that conversation that it's just a little bit odd because hearing one side of it, you learn nothing because it's just words and phrases. And it would be something like this. Now, now who's this? When? W what happened again? Where? And it was that kind of conversation for just, uh, just a few minutes. And she hung up the phone very sobered and looking in the direction of her two sons there, but kind of looking beyond them, she said the name of their brother, one of their brothers, and said, Dustin is dead. Now they already had a brother to die as a teenager. And so that family was uh, very acquainted with grief. One son dropped the utensil out of his mouth. And both of them's hands kind of went down on the table. And, what? what? What do you mean? What happened to him? She said, he's dead. But, but what happened? What happened? He's dead spiritually. Your brother's dead spiritually. Oh, they loudly rebuked their mother. Mom, you can't do that to us. You scared us. We thought you meant he'd really died. And she looked at them and explained, He is really dead. Your brother is spiritually dead. A few weeks after that, knowing this family very well, I was comfortable enough to ask her in a conversation, you know, based on what you said the other morning, you've had a son to die physically that was very much alive spiritually, 
and you've had a son that's alive physically, but is dead spiritually, which one is the hardest to endure? And without any hesitation, she said, it was so much easier to lose my son physically that I know is with the Lord spiritually. She said, it's hard to see your son dead spiritually. It is a sobering reality that in the one full-length sermon we have of Jesus Christ, He too places that reality toward the end of that sermon. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, he, he talks about that there are two paths. And you know, every path leads to a destination. Stop and ponder the simplicity of that thought. Every path leads to a destination. And the Lord explained that one of the paths was really wide, had plenty of room for plenty of people. And the gate itself was also really wide. And Jesus said, many there will be that go in to that wide gate. But then He described a, a much more narrow path, and Jesus actually named this path difficult. And He said on this difficult path, it closes with a narrow gate, and it has a destination also of eternal life. But He explains there will be few that go that difficult path and into that narrow gate. You know, if we were going to talk about the reality this morning of perhaps the greatest problem that we face today in the Lord's Church in North America, I say North America because I don't really know if it would be the biggest problem in other cultures around the world. But if we really stop and think about it, there's one problem that's probably glaring far greater in consequence and in brokenness of heart than any other problem. And it's that year, that year that takes place after high school graduation and the following 12 months. It's sobering to think that the conservative reports would say about 40% of our young people die spiritually during that time. Other reports would say it's more like 60 or 65%, but about 10% sometime later on in their 20s, late 20s, would come back. But the majority of those that leave don't ever come back to the Lord. And so we think about that and we think, what do we do with it? What do we do with the reality of there are so many deaths at such a young age spiritually? We seem to, in our human nature, swing from one extreme or the other. And I believe that probably that's what a lot of us as congregations and individuals in that congregation do. You see, one extreme is to say, and, and by the way, you know, we don't know ever, we don't ever know exactly what label is going to stick, but you know, the millennials have aged out. They're not in college anymore, and uh, they're not graduating from high school anymore. And, and so now the ones graduate from college, they may be called the Z generation. And so we, we look at and say, one extreme would be, hey, we don't want to lose the Z generation. 
So let's figure out every way in which they think. Let's see the way they understand things. Let's see how they respond to things. Let's see what they want. And let's make sure that as a church family, we do everything to cater to the Z generation. Well, the problem in doing that is any time a church marries one generation, they become a widow to all the other generations. So there's another extreme. The other extreme is, well, let's just sweep it under the rug and let's never talk about it. Let's not admit that it happens, and when we do see it happening, let's just pretend it's not happening. You say, well, how would we do that? I'll start on my toes and we'll just work back. You know, sometime over the past few months and sometime in the future few months, you will probably run into someone who grew up in this congregation and they're going to be 19 or 20 years old and you're just going to run into them in town somewhere or out traveling somewhere and you're going to talk about everything in the world, but you're probably intentionally not going to bring up anything about their spiritual life. You're probably not going to ask them things like, what are you worshiping now? How are you doing spiritually? Because we know that the probability is that it's at least half of them that won't be alive spiritually. And we don't know what to do with that. So since I don't know how to respond to that, let me just act like it doesn't happen, and let's talk about everything, and when we are parting, let's throw out the, hey, I'm glad you're doing so well. Are they? And so, surely there's something better than saying, let's make everything we do about them, or let's sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't happen. This is a topic that's a burden in my life for about 15 years now. I have studied this, not to become an expert, because I'm not, but with the intent of trying to do something about it for a decade and a half. I've tried in local church work to do everything we could do to make sure that as many young people that grow up can transition so that we could accomplish this simple thing. What about this? Faith after high school. How awesome would that be? How awesome would it be if we really accomplished that simple goal? Faith after high school. And I know there's a lot of details and there are a lot of good programs we could try. But for the next few minutes, out of that text that was so capably read a few minutes ago in 2 Timothy 1, if you want to be opening there, I'd like for us to read through a few things. And here's what I'd like for you to see. I'd like for you to see that I think there's something that is organic and genuine that is displayed for us in 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 1-7. And what we see is a very genuine relationship between an older Christian who met a younger Christian at probably around the ages that we're talking about that we're concerned with this morning. And we see that, that those two Christians walk through life and service together. And we see that when the younger one needed someone to kind of come along and prod him a little bit, when he needed someone in his life to kind of hold him a little bit accountable, that that relationship was so genuine and so well established that there was someone in their life to be able to do that. It's amazing when we study the life of Paul 
Because what we cannot miss is how much he realized that if the church was ever going to thrive, it has to always be concerned about the next generation of adults. Listen, a church that cannot grow in the 20-something age cannot grow long term. Your 20-somethings that are sitting not only in this pew, but they're in the life of this congregation. In the next decade, that's your deacons. In the next decade and a half, they'll become your elders. Literally, the livelihood of this congregation depends upon can you transition a high school student into the next phase of life and them thrive in their faith. And when we figure that out, we have expanded the kingdom greatly. So what does it look like? Look with me if you will. You see in verse 1 of 2 Timothy, in verse 1, Paul identifies himself as the writer, but look who he's writing to in verse 2. He says he's writing to Timothy, but notice how he describes Timothy. A beloved son. That's an interesting description when the reality is that we're pretty certain that, that there is no relation of blood, no physical family relation between Paul and Timothy. So why does he call him a son? We know the answer to that. You know how when you build a relationship that is so close, you've spent so much time together, you've journeyed through some of the high points of life, but you've also journeyed through some of the difficult points of life, but you also journey with someone that you know they have enriched your life and you have benefited their life also. You know, you can't help but introduce them and say, hey, and they're kind of like family to me. They're like a son to me. Or they're like a father to me. Or they're like a brother to me. And literally, think how beautiful it is. Paul can't write to Timothy without just naturally throwing that out. Timothy, a beloved son. Now, not to be too elementary, but what does beloved mean? Well loved. They don't just have that closeness, but he's saying, son... I love you so much. You see, the relationship is genuine, and we see it by the next couple of verses of what is referred to. Notice verse 3. Now, the first part doesn't get us right to it, but by the time we get to the end of verse 3 and the beginning of 4, we're going to see a lot about this genuine relationship. Look at verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, now here it goes, as without ceasing... I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. How genuine was this relationship? It was so genuine that he says to him, listen, I haven't stopped remembering to pray for you. As a matter of fact, I remember you Night and day. Now, I don't think what Paul was saying there was that he set two alarms on his iPhone and it reminds him to pray for Timothy night and day. Although I would offer to you that since you can label the alarms on your phone, it really is a great way to remember to pray for individuals every day. If there's someone you want to be praying for, label their alarm in their name and set it what time you want to stop and pray. But what was he saying here? He... If you do something night and day, 
You do it all the time. You do it without ceasing. And so he's saying, I remember you every day without ceasing in prayer. Now, do you notice the next thing that he said? He said, I greatly desire to see you. And do you notice the next thing he said? I'm mindful of the tears that have been shed. Now, just to make this real, let's think about us. Of course, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but what, what if the question was asked, is there anybody here over the past month that has prayed every day for a young person that's in their late teens or in their 20s that's not related to you by blood, but you've nurtured a relationship with them because you care about the kingdom, you care about this congregation, and you care about them and their soul. And so because of that, you've focused on this individual and you have prayed for them every day. And it's so genuine that you can't wait to spend time with them. Sometime this week, sometime coming soon, you're going to say, let's, let's go grab some coffee. Hey, let's grab lunch. Hey, let's, let's spend some time fishing. I wonder if there would be anyone here that would know to someone they're not related to that's 18 to 24 years old the last time they cried and why were they crying? And probably a natural question would be, how would I know why they were crying? And that's the point. How well did Paul know Timothy when he says, I can't help but think about you and pray for you. And the next time we can be together, I can't wait to see you. And I'm mindful. I know what's been upsetting you. And it's, it's on my heart too that that's a burden to you. Wouldn't it be amazing if every young person that grew up in a congregation that graduated from high school, by the time they graduated from high school, they had two or three genuine relationships like that in the church family with people that they were not physically related to. How would that change their lives? How would it change your life? How would it change the kingdom? But for Paul, it wasn't just, hey, I'm looking for a good friend. For Paul, I'm sure he appreciated the friendship of Timothy. I have no doubt that he did. But for Paul, it was very focused on, I want to help your faith. Notice that's immediately what he brings up. Did you see again there in verse 5? He says, when I call to remember, it's the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it's in you. You know, it is wonderful when we have peers that encourage us in our faith, and we, we need that. And so what I'm about to say, I'm not discounting the importance of that. But what I would like to raise your attention to is the challenging thought. Wouldn't it be true that there are some things that a mentor 
could offer in a relationship of encouragement and resource that a peer could not offer. It doesn't mean that they don't need the peer, but what I'm saying is if we're going to leave the encouragement of the spiritual faith up to our teenagers to only encourage each other, hey, they're young, they can do this, are they really receiving all that they need? Or is it by God's design? And let's pause here and interrupt. Out of all the ways that the church is sometimes described, there's a lot of descriptions of the church, isn't it? A body, a sheepfold. But remember those descriptive terms that describe the church as family? We're, we're referred to in scriptures as brethren. God Almighty is referred in Scripture. Remember when Jesus taught them to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. The household of God. Household of God is a description of the church in Timothy. What's the point? From the beginning, shortly after Adam and Eve were in the garden, we as a human race began to see what God's design of family is all about. And a healthy family. I know none of us have a perfect family. So, you know, there may be a lot of us here that say, well, I really don't get to experience that. But think about it. God's design of a healthy physical family is that there would be individuals in that family that are like the older great-grandfather, great-grandmother type. That family will have the younger grandparent and parent type in the family. That parent, they'll, they'll have older children in the family, even young adults in the family. They'll have little ones and even babies in the family. And sometimes we say, oh, there were four generations of my family gathered together. Now, can you imagine a physical family where, where the grandparents sit and they refuse to say anything to their grandchild because they say, oh, I... I'm just not close to them. You know, we're, we're so much older than them. In a healthy physical family, you see the interaction between the generations not only so natural, but you see why it's so valuable. I sometimes, you know, you make those long drives and all kinds of things go through your mind. I sometimes think when I'm driving about what my kids, who are grown now, young adults now, what they would be like if they had not had the grandparents they had in their life. So much of the root of their faith is watching their grandparents on both sides. That generation offered them something I could not offer as a parent. I'm saying to you that as true as that is in a physical family, it's just as true in a spiritual family. Your young people, they need some of you that are 30s to be involved in their life. They need some of you in their 40s. They need some of you in their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, their 80s, and their 90s to be involved in their life. And one of you can't be involved in all of their lives. 
the type of mentoring that we're talking about, the type of being heavily engaged in someone's life, praying for them every day, spending time with them when they are available, that maybe could only be done with two, three at the most probably. And so what it takes is it takes a whole church family saying, I'll use my time and my resources and experience and the faith that God's given me to invest in the lives of other generations. And notice what Paul does. I think what Paul does here is he reaches back and he's looking at Timothy. And by the way, if you go ahead and read down in verse 7 and 8, you see that Timothy is watching the sacrifice, the persecution. Remember, we're in 2 Timothy. Paul's waiting to be executed. Now think about this. Timothy is what? A young preacher of the gospel. Paul is waiting to be executed. Why? Because he's a preacher of the gospel. It doesn't take long for Timothy to put this together. If that's what's happening to my mentor, and I follow in the same paths of following Christ that he's walked in, how much longer is it going to be before I'm the one sitting in the dungeon? And so when you read verse 8, it's clear that Paul, as this stronger mentor, is looking back and he's urging him not to give up because he's seeing the suffering of the one that he loves. I don't know how stagnant or staggered Timothy's faith was at this time, and so I'm not trying to overreact. You can study Scriptures and you can figure it out for yourself. But when I look at verse 5, and I see him making this plea of I know the genuine faith that's in you. I know your grandmother. I grew up in a small country church. You think I hadn't heard that one? I know your grandmother. Oh, what a woman of great faith. In her Bible class, everybody that passed through her, her little Bible class, when they said the apostles, she gave them a stick of Wrigley Spearmint gum. I still have adults walk up to me today and say, your grandmother taught me the apostles and I got a stick of gum. That's why I learned it. I know the faith of your grandmother. I know the faith of your mother. And here's this young man that's probably scared to death. It might be flashing through his mind from time to time. I don't know if this is the way I want to live and die. And notice what the mentor does. And I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that genuine faith is in you also. Why is that meaningful coming from Paul instead of a peer that's Timothy's age? Timothy is able to look at a man that's lived through the season of life that he's living and see how successful he has been getting through it. It's like looking at someone a season or two ahead of you and saying, maybe I can do it. If he can do it, he can help me do it. And I just hear that. And, and you know, when I was a younger and I studied this passage, I just thought it was Paul declaring genuine faith in Timothy. And I'm just telling you, my opinion now is that he's not really declaring the genuine faith in him as much as he's declaring the potential of genuine faith if he will just continue. You know, it's kind of like that, son... It's okay. It's okay to be kind of staggered right now. It's okay to maybe feel overwhelmed with fear. 
But what's not okay is to stay there. Come on, son. My beloved son. I pray for you day and night. I can't wait to see you again. I know you've been shedding tears. That's why I'm praying for you every day. Son, I know the faith of your grandmother and your mother. Come on, son. I'm persuaded that it's in you also. And much more quickly, but let's look at two more verses and see two more things. But I know for time's sake, we, we must start moving toward the close. Notice what else? Notice the gift, the stirring up that he reminded him in verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Think about the mentor that he looks up to, the one that, that he loves, and the one that has earned the right to say something tough. Up to this point, it's kind of a lot of encouragement. Up to this point, it's, hey, I love you, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you, I know you can do it. And now he says, in essence, hey, I can't, I can't stir the gift up in you. But I can remind you how important it is, son. You know, the, the idea of rekindling a flame, that's the idea of the Greek here. It's, you know, you, you may be blown on a fire, camping out, trying to build it up. He literally is reminding Timothy, God's given you some amazing gifts. I know, I, I, I was the laying on of hands to give you the miraculous ones. I know the abilities God has given you. And son, beloved son, it's up to you. You need to fan that flame. You need to quit feeling sorry for yourself. You need to become zealous for the Lord. As a matter of fact, he kind of gets to that point in the next verse, doesn't he? Look at verse 7. Still just following up right on that, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. In other words, Timothy, that fear right now that's paralyzing you, it didn't come from God. Now, if it didn't come from God, who did it come from? But let me tell you what God will do for you. God will give you the spirit of power. And God is greater than anything you're going to face. God will give you the spirit of love. And God's love is greater than anything you'll face. And God will give you the spirit of a clear or a sound mind. When you become really fearful about a situation in life if if you're like me hopefully you're not in this way but if you're like me when I am in a situation that that you know I really don't know what to do and I'm feeling anxious about it you know what just comes out of my mouth I, I don't even I don't even think about it it just comes out of my mouth I say I don't know what to do I don't I don't understand right now what to do I don't I don't know what to do and he says God didn't give you that paralyzing fear. God gave you power and love and clear thinking. A sound mind. Can you imagine how different Timothy's life would have been if he had never met Paul? Paul? 
Now, we know as a young man, he was already very committed to his faith. So I am not suggesting to you that he wouldn't be a Christian. And I'm not suggesting that, that he probably wouldn't have done some great works of service. But as I just explore that in my mind, Timothy would have probably never become the great man of faith and had the opportunities to do so much in the kingdom. And for us to be talking about him a few thousand years later, if back in Acts the 16th chapter, Paul's on his second missionary journey, he passes through Lystra and Derb. Verse 2, the members of the congregation are literally bragging on this young man named Timothy. And Paul, this missionary that just had John Mark in the previous mission trip, a young man, to turn back on him and apparently created a stressful situation because you remember at the end of that journey and they started planning the next, Paul and Barnabas had a huge strife and division because of the discussion about John Mark. And here's, here's this missionary Paul that if I could just use the expression, he was kind of burned recently by a young man. And now he's on this missionary journey. And it would have been so easy for him to say, oh, I'm, I, I'm yeah, a fine young man there. But think to himself, but I'm not taking a young man on my trip. I'm going to look for a partner that's more my age so that we think the same and, and, and we approach things the same and we have that same dedication. It is amazing to me that what Paul just went through, verse 3 begins in Acts 16, him saying, and Paul wanted him to go with him. That's what it comes down to. Do we really want our youth to go with us on this walk of faith? Do we want to form that relationship that's genuine? Do we want to strengthen their faith? Do we want to help them fan the flame of, of the gifts and abilities that God has given them? And do we want them to have genuine courage instead of genuine fear? There's a lot at stake of what we're studying about this morning. We're talking about souls and eternity of people we love. And the way it's impacted is through genuine family relationships. We're blessed this morning that God is gracious. We're blessed that God knows we're far from perfect. We're blessed that He sent His Son to save us and to redeem us and then told us and taught us stories and even theology like the prodigal son that we can come back again and again. So we're about to sing a song of encouragement. 
And it's not our invitation. It's the Lord's invitation. And He not only wants to be your Father, He loves you more than anybody's ever loved you. And it doesn't matter where you've been, He wants you to come home. And when we do come home, He wants us to genuinely love Him and each other. And so this morning, if we're not at home where we should be with our Father, and we're not really loving each other the way we should be with our Father, let's address it. Maybe it's something just between you and God. Maybe it's something that you just start today, a commitment. Or maybe it's something that's more public. Maybe you're ready to become a Christian this morning and be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Maybe you want to be restored this morning and confess sin and we'd be honored to pray with you for God's forgiveness. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing. Is your burden heavy as you bear it all alone? Does the road you travel harbor danger yet unknown? Are you growing weary in the struggle of it all? Jesus will help you when on His name you call. He is always there, faithful and true, walking by our side the day through. When you get discouraged, just remember what to do. Reach out to Jesus, He's reaching out to you. Is the life you're living filled with sorrow and despair? Does the future press you with its worry and its care? Are you tired and friendless? Have you almost lost your way? Jesus will help you. Just come to Him today. He is always there and true, walking by our side.